Hello, and welcome to The Real Writing Process. I'm your host, Tom Pepperdine, and this week, my guest is author Nick Bradley. Now, you may know Nick from his successful debut novel, The Cat in the City. And if you don't, then it's a collection of tales set across Tokyo that weave in and out of each other in a sort of wonderful way to show how societies and cultures overlap. And what you also may not know is that it was a novel written as part of his PhD in creative writing at the University of East Anglia. And the UEA has quite a good record of churning out successful writers. Too many to list, in fact. But the phrase notable alumni of the UEA is not too long to Google. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, please go have a look. Now, I spoke to Nick on his promo tour for the follow-up book called Four Seasons in Japan. And for full transparency, I was sent his book in advance. But for even more transparency, and to be truly honest with you, he's only on because I genuinely love the book. Uh, It's just a really clever, sophisticated uh, sort of telling of a book within a book. But lots of times I don't think that sort of mechanism works. This really does. And it really worked for me. And it's certainly not a book, if, if I'm honest, that I would have picked up. But I'm really glad it was sent to me. I'm really glad I read it. And I'm really glad I've interviewed Nick. And I don't want to get into a full-blown rant, but I've been sent a lot of crap and wasted many hours reading stuff by people I now no longer have interest in in interviewing. I don't want to be another podcast that just interviews anyone. I want it to be people who are interesting and I'm interested in. And my promise to you is that I'm not going to waste your time with crap interviews with bad writers. And with that said, Nick is a great writer. He's also a lovely person to interview. And I really think his way into the industry is unique, um, certainly for this podcast. And it's really interesting to hear his perspective. And I really hope it's useful to some of you and interesting to all of you. Anyway, here's a jingle. Let's go. And this week, I'm here with Nick Bradley. Nick, hello. Hi, Tom. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, how are you? Excellent. I'm very well, thank you. And uh, my first official question, as always, what are we drinking? I feel really bad about this, but I've made you drink a decaf black coffee. How is it? I'll tell you now. <laughs> it's good. It is good. I've actually had decaf coffee before, and it has been squirreled away in the back of my fridge, wrapped up because it's freshly ground. But it's a Colombian coffee that I've got, and it, yeah, it's good. Also, it's an excuse to use my AeroPress. So hey. I'm always happy to have freshly ground black coffee. As, I as do a love the AeroPress. It's a game changer. I think anyone who drinks coffee at home and doesn't want instant, you have to have one. Yeah, Especially because my wife doesn't drink coffee. I'm the only coffee drinker in the house. So it's just, I used to have one of these big American filter coffee with the big jug mm-hmm. underneath but I, just, I can't drink that much coffee in a day it sends me to a weird place so do you always drink decaf or is this just today you don't want to get too caffeinated every day i don't want to get too okay so i make mine in an espresso machine mm. so i normally have a strong cup of coffee in the morning and that's good for me i'll have a cup of tea after lunch but i tend to not go overboard on on caffeine okay i think it's definitely something that. I think we're waking up to the the health negatives as well as the health benefits. Everything in moderation. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, I've also had a caffeinated coffee today. So having a decaf for the interview works well for me. And where am I speaking to you? I see shelves behind you. Is this your writing spot at home? 
Yeah, so this this is my study. Weirdly, though, it's probably where I do more of my kind of second drafting or editing because I tend to write first drafts outside the house. I go to yeah. the, I go to a cafe. Okay, and with the first draft cafe, do you have a particular cafe that you like to go to, or is it just you like to wander and just sort of see a quiet spot in the corner? I'm a really boring person. A lot of my life, particularly when it comes to writing, is just I do the same thing, and it's so that my brain switches off and mm. I'm not thinking about what I'm doing other than the writing. Yeah. So I always go to the same cafe in, in the city. I try and sit at the same seat and it's all just a process of allowing my brain to, to just think about writing and yeah. to not engage with kind of the daily decisions that get in the way of writing. Yeah. Know? And for some people, I know that it almost feels like a daily commute as well. Like it's <laughs> the separation of home and work. So do you, as well as having the same spot, do you try and go for the same time and same length of time each day? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's about a 30 minute walk, which is, okay. I mean, there are definitely places I could go that are closer. I don't know. There's part superstition where I go yeah. to the place because it worked for my first two books. Mm. And yeah, it's also, you're right. It's a sense of delineating or separating the home mm. from the workspace, which is good. And I think also just that 30 minute walk is a great time to be in my head, to be thinking about what it is I'm going to write when I arrive mm. at the cafe. Because if I, if I was just commuting downstairs to the study, that would only give me a couple of minutes to think about what I was going to write. Whereas that yeah. 30 minutes with my music just in my own head is really good, actually. Yeah. And when you get there, are you a laptop writer or do you have a series of notebooks or is it just, again, how you feel on the day? I tend to get my notebook out and... I don't really know what the notebook is for sometimes. I've fallen into a habit of just writing the date and just journaling and just, just getting my own feelings out. How am I feeling about the project? How is it going? And also I write words or themes at the top of the page so that I'm constantly seeing that theme or that idea that is very important to the project that I'm working on. So I'll sit there with my notebook for a bit and then usually I'll, I'll just start feeling frustrated. So I'll, then I'll get the laptop out and then I'll start working properly on the document yeah and it's interesting writing the theme in the corner of the page so is that your sort of grounding central spot when you start a project that you, you start a theme and you go okay how can i manifest this into a plot or do you start with a character how does a story begin for you that's yeah that's a really good question so i'd say for me personally a story always begins with a character like a character will just pop in my head and that's where it starts but the reason I write down on the theme, probably because I, I suppose listeners are interested in the writing process, but also the things learned from mistakes. What is my second book is not the second manuscript that I've finished in my life. It's probably the fourth full manuscript that I've finished. So the first one I ever wrote, I just put in a drawer and I never did anything with it. And I'm sure the purpose of writing that first manuscript was just to prove to myself that I could do it. And once you've done it once, that's the most amazing achievement. Even if it never gets published, even if no one ever sees it, it's an amazing achievement to have written a whole novel, 100,000 words. It's a long slog. So that one, I didn't do anything with it. The second one was my first book. But then after my first book came out, I wrote another book and I ended up trashing that manuscript. So it was about 120,000 words, but I threw it out. And mainly it was because... My editor's feedback on it was that the themes were too diffuse. It was a very long thing. It was about 120,000 words, but it was dealing with too many ideas and too many themes. So really the reason why I write down that theme that's 
basically the thesis or the central theme of the book. I write it down over and over again so that I can see it each morning to keep myself on track mm. because I think the nature of my mind is that I will just wander off into different paths. So in a sense that writing down that theme is just to make sure I'm not going off all over the place. Yeah. I'm tying myself down to what it is that I've set out to write. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. And I think that's a great method. I haven't heard that before, but I think that's a great technique to do that. Returning to the sort of idea of journaling and writing the date and sort of the start of your writing session, do you look back at the day before to just remind yourself and have a through narrative? Or is it very much you've had your 30-minute walk, you're feeling in this sort of vibe and sense on that day whether you know how you slept how, you know what the weather's like and you're just writing a completely fresh session and it'll be later in the edit you'll try and join them up yeah that's that's a, another really good question so with the journaling where i'm just writing in i'm often sort of keeping track with where i am in the story or with the characters but i don't tend to go and read that over so i don't go back and look at what i wrote the day before but the way i work and I know writers have all got their sort of funny ways of working. Yeah. My my way of working is, again, it's born out of things that I've done with the first two books that worked. And I've tried to retain those and I've tried to jettison things that didn't work. But what works, what really works for me is instead of thinking in terms of word count, I always think of in terms of scene when I'm writing. So I don't think, oh, I need to write X number of words. I think I need to write this scene. But what I do in terms of word count is that I actually set a limit on myself for the week. Okay. So I say to myself, you must write one chapter of 5,000 words and it must be ready to go on Sunday evening. And the way I work on that, sorry to get really granular. No, no this is exactly what we're about. <laughs> okay, good, good. I start a new word document for each chapter and each morning, say on the Monday, Mondays are the scariest because that's when you've got an empty document. Yeah. So the aim for Monday is just get something down so that you've got a, a thousand words or so in the document. But what I tend to do each morning, though, is when, I'm, when I start, I don't really start writing. I read over what I've written so far in that chapter. Mm. And the reason why I separate out my chapters and just work on one is because I know that if I was working on one long document, I would scroll back to the beginning and I would start at the beginning right. and read through everything. Or I would get carried away editing bits, or it might start making me question things when really, when you're writing a first draft, you have to move forward like a shark. You can't stop. I mean, I'm quite a quick writer, so I can definitely write a thousand or 2000 words in a day. No problem. But what I find is I gen generally I'll write about 1000 words a day. But what it means is that by Sunday, that piece has been edited and looked over a lot. So I know that when I put it away and I move on to the next chapter, it's a solid piece. My rule for it is that it's to the level that I would be willing to send it in to the UEA MA workshop, which I did right. before I wrote my first book. It has to be to that level that I could send it to a workshop of people, some of whom would like me and some of whom wouldn't like me. And yeah. even the people who wouldn't like me would have to begrudgingly admit that this was done to a good level. That's my kind of mental gauge of where I need it to be on that Sunday. Yeah. And when you're assigning a chapter a week, have you mapped out an outline of what each chapter is going to achieve in the plot narrative do you map all of that out before or is it just you get a rough sense of what might happen before you start writing it and then you just let the characters go and by the end of the week it might have ended up somewhere completely different 
it's difficult sometimes because, you know, even when we talk about ourselves, we think we're a certain way and we're not. It's more about the narratives we tell ourselves. But I think I'm, a, I'm an adaptable person in terms of writing. So most of it is just kept in my head. For example, the thing I'm writing at the moment, I know the three worlds that it's set in and I know what I want to happen and where things are going to go. I kind of know that in my head. But the reason I just keep it in my head is that over time, I think Stephen King said this, but a writer's notebook is the best place to immortalize bad ideas. And I kind of agree with him in that all my best ideas just stay in my head. So if I think about a premise or if I think about an event that I want to happen, if it's a good idea, it will just stay there. And all those kind of like little flash in the pan ones, I just forget them because they're not very good. And so for me, that's the reason why I don't plan and write things down. I don't write down what's going to happen. And part of that is also to get that thrill of when you sit down and just think, I've got no idea where this is going. Let's see where it goes today. But in a sense, I do know where I want it to go eventually. But in that chapter, it's giving me the freedom to do whatever I like. I often kind of liken it to going on, on a country walk or something and you might see like a church spire in the distance. You might think, yeah. oh, I'm going to head that way. But in the process of heading that way, you'll spot all these really interesting things. Oh, there's a ruin for a castle. Let's go have a look at that. And I think that combination of roughly knowing where you're going and also the kind of playful openness to just say, I know I said I was going to go there, but like, mm, this looks interesting. <laughs> I think I liken my process to that. I think it's an adaptable combination of someone who likes to plan, but someone who also likes to improvise. Yeah, I've definitely uh, spoken to writers before where they actually liked not knowing the ending of mm. their books because it caused them to ramp up and race to the finish because they wanted to know how it ends, Yeah, which I just found really interesting. But yeah, having two points of a journey, a beginning and an end, and sort of the meandering middle for a first draft, yeah, you know, it's definitely a recognized technique. It's definitely a group of authors I know who approach it like that. So it's, it's nice to hear another. And you mentioned how there's three worlds in your current project. Yeah. I'm a sci-fi nut, so I'm instantly thinking interplanetary, but is that more timeline-based or is it a bit of metafiction of books within books? Could you say oh, yeah. a bit more about those three? I, okay, I'm slightly worried because had I done this podcast with you, before, when I was writing that book that I ended up trashing, yeah. I would go, yeah, there's this book, and I got into all these yeah. details about this thing that I ended up throwing away. So just the caveat that this, it might not go anywhere. It might be that the, yeah. the one I write afterwards is the one that's the next book. But yeah, I think just the easiest way to talk about that without being too specific is yeah. that one story is set in space. One story is set in contemporary Britain. One story is set in... 1990s Seattle. Wow. Yeah. I'm glad that you said that you're into sci-fi because I like sci-fi too. I like all genres. I really love everything. And with my first book, one of my aims for it was to try and write as many genres as I could mm. into one book so that me being a contrarian, I don't like the way we divide up books. I think yeah. we should just have a wall that's just fiction. And yeah. I don't like this division of here goes the sci-fi, here goes the crime. So I tried to put some sci-fi in it. I tried to put some crime in it. I tried to put a bit of like ghost story. I wanted a bit of everything in my first mm. book because I, I feel like your first book is an announcement of this is what yeah. I want to do yeah. in my career. Like each one of those stories, like there's probably two or three homages in it. But one of those was to Ray Bradbury's Illustrated Man. 
Yeah, no, I've not read Illustrated Man, which is why I wouldn't have picked up on it. <laughs> but, Illustrated uh, Man's fantastic. I think you'll yeah. love it. So it begins with the narrator meeting a guy who's got tattoos all over his body. Yeah. But then each one of the tattoos becomes like a story. So it's okay. it, Illustrated Man is a kind of link collection mm. of stories. But yeah, anyway, I think you'll yeah. love it. And Ray Bradbury is a great writer. So yes, thank you for the recommendation. But yeah, just just so we don't lose the thread, going on to your current project, which may or may not see the light of day. It sounds like there's a lot of fun research opportunities to be had with that, because obviously Japan features strongly in your first two books. And you spent a lot of time there, you know, fluent Japanese. So there's a lot that you could call upon, I felt like, with that. But yeah, when you're doing a historical period in Seattle and also with space do you want to ground that in a reality where you're looking at what technology is achievable now and where it's going or is it very much these are the sci-fi films I like and I want to write something similar yeah yeah. good question I think with the sci-fi one I read a a memoir by a Japanese soldier who in the second world war he was in a small island I think in the pacific somewhere and he kept fighting the war. Have you heard about this? Yeah. So it's like after the war finished, he still was defending this island because no one yeah. came to tell him. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I read his memoir and it was so interesting. And he carried on fighting the war for 30 years. And his brother came to the islands and was walking around with a loudspeaker saying, hey, the, the war's over. You can come out. And he was saying to himself, I don't believe that. It's just propaganda. They're trying to trick me. And it took getting his former what would you say, like his commanding officer, who was now working in a bookshop in the South (laughs) of Japan. It took bringing him over to give him the order to stand down, to come back to Japan and stop stop fighting this war. So I think it was reading that got me thinking about this idea and wanting to do something similar in space. And I suppose that world is now growing. I actually haven't started putting pen to paper for that strand. So I've written one strand, a rough draft of, contemporary Britain and I'm halfway through 90 Seattle and with the space one I haven't started writing it yet so it's still just it's still just a story that is percolating yeah yeah I talk about it like I run simulations yeah Um, so I'm running the scenes in my mind and I'm seeing it but I haven't yet yeah okay that's cool and so when you're researching Seattle, have you got any connection to Seattle or is it just internet research? Have you got a book that's a really good sort of anchor point for you or a documentary? How's the research for that going? Okay, yeah. So that one is also just personal interest. It's like partly nostalgia. People from Seattle would hate me for saying this, but I was a grunge kid, very much into the music that came out of Seattle in the 90s. And I think we're roughly the same age. So We are. I think there's only about eight months between us. Uh, so yeah, I had a Pearl Jam 10 tie-dye yeah. t-shirt. I love those days. Yeah. So I think um, partly, you know, I've been to Seattle a couple of times and I, I love it. I love the music that, that came out of it. So I wanted to write about that period. I also like, I'm kind of a bit nostalgic for the nineties in the sense that now with social media and everything, I just feel like we don't have the serenity that we used to have. Yeah. Uh, there's yeah. Sorry. Go on. So yeah, I get that. Yeah. Not going too much into my personal life. I'm in a much better place now than I was in the nineties. So maybe I'm not <laughs> too nostalgic about it, but I totally get where you're coming from with it. Yeah. Yeah, there are so many things that we've gained. So yeah, I, I don't want to be one of those people who just, I don't want to age too quickly and be <laughs> like, oh, it was better in my day. But I, I think there is a side of me that in, in the same way that when I read a book, I want to escape. I think also 
when you're writing a book, you want to escape. You want to escape to a place that interests you, that you're passionate about. So I suppose with Seattle, I don't want to go too much into details, but there has to be a a tech connection. Mm. And Seattle's an interesting city in that it it went from being a very blue collar city to being this huge Mm. fashion icon, as it were, people trying to dress like these loggers from Seattle. And then also, then you've got the tech companies moving in and Mm. you've got places like Nintendo of America's based near Seattle. Microsoft, Google, like all these tech companies also settled there. And I find it an interesting place. I think it reminds me a lot of Manchester in the right. UK. Yeah. Awful weather, but great music. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, not to go on about Seattle too much, but mm. I, I definitely, with my new book, I definitely want to get out of Japan. I want to challenge myself and do something different. Um, yeah. So there is a sense that I'm going to places that are different, that are not Japan, purely on principle, as it were. Yeah. And as I said, you've got these three different world elements and you've written a draft of the contemporary and you're working on Seattle at the moment. So how many words would you say you're into this project? 30,000. Okay. And compared to your, I guess this is the fifth manuscript you're working on and is there a period that you get through a manuscript where it either all clicks into place or the complete 180 is that moment where you have a complete crisis of confidence of actually what am i doing i'm not even a writer why am i doing this it's a really good question okay it's i think it's something i used to suffer from so even that first manuscript that i wrote that obviously wasn't the first thing I tried to write. And I think I spent my teens and my 20s and my, my early 30s. I tried to write a lot of books and I, I used to always stumble at about 20,000 words. That used to be my stumbling point. But I think after writing that first one, I don't think I have that fear anymore. I think what's more likely is that I'll write the whole thing and then I'll look at it or someone else will look at it, my, my agent, my, my editor, and they will say, this isn't working. And I'll say, okay, why isn't it working? And then I'll go back and I'll start something else. So I'm not scared. I am aware of the voices in the head. And this is what I tell people to stop listening to those. Your brain will try and trick you and say, this isn't worth it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Like, what's the point? But I always just tell myself, like, all of the great works of literature that I love and adore, I know that the writers felt those same things. And had they listened to those voices those things would not exist. Mm-hmm. I just think it's better to have done something than to not. It's better to regret yeah. something done than something you haven't done. Yeah. A quote from Orbital's Satan uh, <laughs> yeah. single that came out in the early 90s. But yeah, so I think your brain will try to say to you, this has been done before. Your book is just like this other book. Of course, you're going to write something that's similar to other things, but it's never been written or done by you. And that's the important thing. You're going to bring something different to it. And the fact that Similar stuff already exists is, you know, clear demonstration that it's a good idea. If it wasn't a good idea, it probably wouldn't exist. I think that's a great piece of advice, which I hope listeners who are struggling with their writing can really take home. But moving on from that, more granular, so like getting down to the day to day, when you walk to the coffee shop, are there days where you just go and there's just nothing or it's like too noisy? Or are you confident in your writing now that you? 
you can identify those moments and you just go, you know what? I'm going to walk home. I'm not going to try. Today's a wasted day. Do you have days where you just don't want to go to the coffee shop or do you always force yourself to go? I always want to go. But yeah, I know completely what you're saying. I think there are some days where it's, yeah, I killed it. And then there are some days that it's really tough. But I think partly why I'm so strict with my routine and why I'm repetitive with my routine is there are certain things built into my routine that stop me. So for example, I'll put my phone on airplane mode the night before. Um, so there will be no, no interference. No one's going to contact me and get in the way of me writing my words. I'll turn off the Wi-Fi on my laptop. So those are two things that I've done that will stop me giving myself an excuse to not write the words. So in a sense, like the airplane mode is only going to come off once the words are written. Same with the Wi-Fi. And I think some days, yeah, it can be quite a struggle. But, and I think this is coming back to the previous question a little bit. There are certain things in my life, like maxims or ideas that have really helped me. One is Murakami's his first ever novel, Hear the Wind Sing. The first sentence in it is, there is no such thing as the perfect sentence. Mm. And to me, that blew my mind when I first read it, because I just thought, yeah, this idea of the writer achieving perfection, it doesn't exist. The only thing that matters is progress, right? Progress, not perfection, essentially. So even if I do turn up at the cafe, even if 800 words is all I do, and it feels like a struggle and I feel like it's crap, it's still 800 more words than mm. had I not tried. Yeah. And that, that's the way I view it, is that any form of progress is great. As long as you haven't deleted the whole thing, as long as you haven't killed someone, the day's going well if you make just even a tiny bit of progress. Because it's those tiny increments of progress that add up to the novel. And I'd say, actually, in some ways, it's better to set your daily bar low so that you always achieve it rather than trying to push it higher and higher. And then you're at risk of feeling like you failed. Oh, that's great. And I think uh, that helps us transition into that whole editing process. And so once you've got a beginning, middle and end you'll do a complete draft before you start editing. And how do you start that redrafting process? Do you print it out? Do you read it all the way through making annotations? Or do you just do a skim read and then go, right, these are the key scenes that I need to rework? Like, how does your editing process look? Yeah, I think once I've got a first draft and I've got it all in as a complete manuscript, and maybe I've read over it and I've tinkered with it here and there, at that point, I feel a bit blind to it. So... I think at that point, I usually open the door and try and get some thoughts from friends who I trust. So people who are happy to read. And some of those might be writers and we might swap stuff. So like I've got one friend who's just a fantastic reader. She's someone who I met when I was first living in Japan and she works for the Washington Public Library and she just loves to read and she doesn't want to be a writer, but she's like a great reader. So yeah, I'll usually share an early draft of the whole thing with some friends, close friends, and then I'll take what they're saying and then I'll factor that into the redraft. You know, and sometimes you'll agree with them. Sometimes you'll nah, maybe not agree with them. But usually though, if they're pointing at a place and saying something, there's usually an issue there that needs to be fixed. And so sometimes it's about working out what that issue is. I do like to print stuff out and read it on paper, but I feel like there's so many drafts there's so many redrafts and so yeah. many versions that I always feel really bad because I, sometimes I'll print one out mm. and then I'll start working on it and it'll be so different that 
if I were to go to that printout version. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So, but reading on paper is really good. Um, and there should always be a point in the process where you do read on paper. But yeah, I mean, sometimes I'll whack it on my Kindle and read it mm. all. You know, that's also handy. I think just seeing it in a different format rather than just on the screen can alert you to things. But I'd say that the real heavy lifting starts usually when I've shown it to my agent or to my editor. That's when we start hearing things like, does it even need to be set in space at all? Shouldn't <laughs> yeah. it all be set in 90 Seattle? Yeah. Which you deal with when those come in, yeah. 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 And have you had the same editor for all five manuscripts? The first one, I never saw anything. But I, I have the same editor as The Cat in the City, and they also edited Four Seasons in Japan. So that scrap manuscript in the middle, that was also the same editor who mm. said, I don't think this is the right thing to follow. And I trust their judgment implicitly. Mm. And they also wrote a very good email explaining why. And as soon as I read it, I was just like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so that, there's a lot of trust in that relationship. Because I always think the editors are almost the unsung heroes of writers. Uh, and how did that relationship, but so was that someone that you met through your PhD? Was it on the course or what, did they come later? No, yeah, they came later. So, so the first person I suppose I met was my agent. And yeah, I met my agent just at the sort of tail end of doing the MA in creative writing at UEA. And that must have been in 2016. I met him and just instantly clicked with him. He's fantastic. Similar taste. He's also like into sci-fi. And yeah, so that was great. He was always completely supportive of the book. But he obviously was the one who submitted it to Atlantic, who were my first publisher. And that was where the manuscript got in front of Bobby, my my editor. Yeah. And so was it the same kind of thing that you had with your agent that when you met Bobby, it was just like, oh, you get how I approach writing? What Was there something that you could sort of tell, like, you're my editor, you're definitely the person I'm going to trust with this? Yeah, it was the same sort of thing. I read their notes or their response to the book and I met with them and I just instantly was like, yeah, this person gets what it is I'm trying to do. Because I met with the publishers and they had questions for me and I had questions for them. And I just felt really comfortable with that team who yeah. we did The Cat in the City with. And you're completely right in what you said earlier about unsung heroes, because I feel like the publishing industry is just full of unsung heroes. And I often think about it, you know, say, for example, like you send off a manuscript to an agent, but maybe it's not the agent who reads it first. Maybe it's an assistant who picks yeah. it up in slush pile. That's true. Yeah. They're the one who is like, I love this. And they take it to your agent and you never even get to thank them. You never get to meet them and say, you changed my life. And I feel like that too, even still, I think about Four Seasons in Japan and I think about all the people who've worked on it. And I know a lot of the people who have worked on it, but then there must be a ton of people at the publisher who've done things towards it who I'm not aware of and I would love to thank. And I, I just, I drive myself crazy thinking about these kinds of yeah. things. I'm sorry. No, that's right. Actually, I think of the little details. It reminded me about in Four Seasons of Japan. And this may be something that you did in the Cat and City as well. So I haven't finished it. So apologize in my ignorance. Photographs and yes. drawings, which just really elevated the reality of the story. And firstly, you know, those your photographs and drawings. And was that always a thing from the start that you wanted to include? Or how did that get featured into the, the manuscript? 
Oh, is it crazy if I don't want to admit that my photographs, because I, I, I don't want to take them <clears> away <throat> from my characters. But no, I'm glad that you like that element because I love that too. I love what books can do on the page. Audiobooks are great and everything, but one of the magical things about printed book mm. is all of the visual elements that you yeah. do with it. And so I was really excited when you said you were a photographer earlier because I was also a photographer. That was one of the things that I was doing out in Japan, but I was doing travel stuff mostly. And I, I think it really brings the verisimilitude, not to get to English <laughs> literature on this, but it really ups that sense of reality. Yeah. Uh, and I just love books that do that. And I remember doing an event for the Catmull City because I had a similar kind of question. And I said, when I was young, I really loved the Jolly Postman. Do you remember that? <laughs> oh my God, yeah. yes. Yeah. You could take the actual letters out yeah. and they had all the different handwriting and everything. Yeah. And I just thought that was the most incredible thing ever. And so I, I said that was like one of the inspirations behind some of the yeah. more weirder elements of, yeah. of the stuff I write. And someone was like, oh, I thought you were going to say like Kurt Vonnegut or something. <laughs> no, he's Jolly yeah. Postman. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. Yeah. And it, it is just, like you say, it just builds the reality of the world that you're crafting. And I'm not going to go into the plot narrative of why, but it's just these pictures appear later in the book. So it's just, there's nothing to indicate this is a semi-picture book. So when they suddenly appeared, it was completely true to the narrative that you were crafting, it, but it was just like, oh, this isn't something you see in every book. And um, yeah, and that, that's a great reference point. I'm going to remember that for a long time. And it's just, it shows that good ideas can come from anywhere. You don't have to look at the greats for a great idea. Yeah. So just one thing to add as well on, on the photographs, and it ties back to something that you were saying earlier about, I think, word choice. And I don't know, I'm being really in, inarticulate now. <laughs> one, of, one of the things I found as well is photography. It's a wonderful storytelling mm. medium. I love it. Um, my problem, I think, and I don't know if you feel like this too, is that sometimes as a photographer, the things that you love are not necessarily the things that you must use in your career. Yeah, and I feel like I took that lesson w when writing a book. It's not about me, right? This book is not about me. It's about my characters. Even the thinking about the photos that they would choose versus the photos I would choose. Like getting into that mindset and just thinking, okay, how would my character, what photos would they upload? Because I know the ones I would upload, they would be the ones that showed me off as being such a <laughs> fantastic photographer. And I feel like we can get like that with word choice as well. Yeah. It's great that we have writers like Nabokov. I love Nabokov, but I think not everyone can be like him. Like yeah. he can't be as amazing and prolix and articulate. I think though, I also love writers where you don't even notice them. You don't notice them because you're so engrossed in the story, in the characters. And I think as soon as a writer's using a, an overly complex word or something that, that shows more about them than it does about their characters, mm. that's an issue, I think. Yeah. And I think it can be the same too with these kind of non-textual things that I try and use in, in the book. I think sometimes I have to rein it in a little bit because I'm being too gimmicky. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it certainly didn't come across in the final book. So you've successfully avoided that, in my opinion, at least. And when you've finished a manuscript it's like it's edited bobby signed it off it's like okay we're, we're good to go do you get a sense of relief of just like, okay i can put that to bed move on to something else or because there's always that percolating idea that you want to move on to or 
do you get a sense of grief of I spent so long with these characters and I'm sending them off into the world and I won't be spending time with them anymore? Do you find it more of a relief to finish or grief to finish? Uh, I always think as well that there are so many false endings with writing mm. a book. That initial first ending that you think, oh, I've done it. There's a lot of grief. There's a bit of relief. I definitely feel both. The grief thing's real though. I think especially when you're not quite sure what it is you want to work on next, I probably dwell on the grief more. Mm. I dwell on it until I've set in my mind okay this is what i'm going to do next and then usually i'll be like i'm going to write this thing and then it will come back with more edits or whatever and then you have to go back into it again yeah. and then you work on it and then you feel that relief and then maybe you have to go back into it a couple more times so yeah. it, i'm hoping to feel relief with this one where it's published because it's published next week it's very difficult to take stock and yeah appreciate what you've got yeah i'm not sure when you feel it it's finished because obviously you're saying with Four Seasons in Japan, it's more like the release date is when it's, okay, it's definitely done, but there's like your edit, there's the book proofs and all those like versions that you have to go through, maybe look at different colours or typefaces and all that jazz. But when you have a sense that you've finished the main chunk of work, main manuscript, and it's sent off Mm. to be printed, do you have any kind of rituals of just okay now i can have champagne or now i can buy myself a new gadget or do you have any sort of thing that you like to do once you've finished a book that's yeah that's a good question like the character in misery that he what does he do he has like a cigar or something. yeah i think it's champagne yeah i don't i think i like to just take a moment and just think wow but i think that that moment comes when you get the final hardbacks i think mm. that moment of just wow this is a thing like, it's, a, it's a real like, thing yeah how did i do it like <laughs> i pulled it off i think also like maybe some writers are different and you would know better than me cuz after interviewing so many but i'm such a control freak so even when i'm getting my proofs the proof pages mm. I'm still reading over it. I'm still fussing on it. And I'm still saying, no, like this line here, like this line break is wrong. So maybe some other writers have already detached and moved on mm. onto their thing. Whereas I'm still not letting go. I'm still. Yeah. yeah I'm going to paraphrase and butcher a quote here, but it's great art is never finished. It's abandoned. Um, it's true. It's true. I have two last questions. My listeners will know exactly what I'm going to say now because it's verbatim every time. It's my belief that writers continue to grow and develop their writing with each story that they write. Was there anything in particular that you learned from your last story that you're now applying to your latest work? That's a good question. Yeah, that's a really good question. I suppose I've already talked a little bit about the theme thing, so that's Mm. definitely one thing. But I'd say if you consider the whole process of trying to get a second book published, The main thing I've learned is that failure, what we perceive as failure or rejection, is sometimes a point where you can learn a lot. My theme for the second book that I always wrote was failure. It was this idea of, I just had a second book rejected. First book did well, and I didn't see that coming. Maybe I did actually. A lot of my friends were like, don't worry, you'll be fine. And there was a side of me that was like, I'm not going to be fine. This is going to be difficult. The biggest thing I learned though, is that you just keep going. Even when you have setbacks, even like rejections or things don't go well, you just keep going. You just keep doing the thing that you love and don't worry about what goes on in the mm. background. Keep doing it, 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 what it is that you enjoy yeah. in life. I think that's probably the most important thing. I mm. And I think we've covered this through a lot of the conversation, but 
I always like to say, is there one piece of advice that you find yourself returning to? There's like one thing that resonates with you when you're writing that, you know, might be in a quote or just something that you always try and keep in your head. Oh, yeah, there's quite a few. There's quite a few, like a lot. Just say a few quickly. So one would be Kazuo Ishiguro. I was really lucky to have a masterclass with him. And one thing he said stuck in my mind, which was that his writing changed for the better when he stopped thinking about his characters in isolation and started to think about them in terms of the relationships that they have with each other. So he started to consider relationships as characters rather than characters as isolated individuals. And I really love that. It's something I think about a lot. Another one was Elizabeth Strout. She said, she said her writing changed for the better when she stopped judging her characters and just let them be. And I really love that. I really love that. I I don't think I have ever judged my characters. Mm. I just let them be and I love them no matter who they are Mm. and what they do. And I think that as a, as an author, that's what you've got to do. You you can't be stacking the odds against certain characters. Mm. You have to let all of them exist and be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other one was that Murakami, uh, the first sentence, there's no such thing as a perfect sentence. Gosh, yeah. Stephen King's got a ton of them in on life. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, there's so many. I think so many. Mm. Yeah. 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 Oh, can I ask you a question? You can indeed. What is the weirdest drink that someone has made you drink for this podcast? Um, the one that I was scared of that I thought I wouldn't like, but actually ended up did liking was licorice root tea. And that was really, I had to go out to a specialist shop to buy that. And I was like, what am I about to drink? Because I don't really like licorice, but it's actually really nice. But then I did look it up afterwards and drinking a lot of it can be very bad for you. So (laughs) it was one of those things that I still have it. And any guest who comes to my house and sees all these teas, it's just like, why do you have all these teas? I was like, podcast. It's like, my wife hates it because I don't drink tea. I drink coffee. But as I said, oh, but if someone says, do you have any herbal tea? I'm just, oh, come this way. That, that's been an amazing, not foreseen benefit of the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. My older brother, he has his own company, but weirdly, he keeps a whole cupboard full of random teas and he's really proud of them. He, he's like, <laughs> what do you want? I've got anything, anything mm. you want. I think it's one of those things because it keeps for an inordinate amount of time so it's like you can build these collections and they'd be completely drinkable and it's not expensive and it is just a again it's accommodating other people and being considerate to other people it's just whatever you want here i'm here that's a great musing ending i really appreciate a fantastic chat nick i hope you've enjoyed it as much as i have yeah no, it's uh, been great great thank you and thank you very much for being my guest this week thank you for having me And that was The Real Writing Process of Nick Bradley. Nick is on Twitter and Instagram and also teaches creative writing at Cambridge. So whichever of those three is easiest for you to contact him, please use. No judgment. But yes, I do strongly recommend his latest book, Four Seasons in Japan. If you like characters and stories, it's definitely worth a look. It's out now in the UK, and as his first book was translated into into 14 languages, it should hopefully be available in lots of other countries soon as well. Now, if you're still listening, I'm going to guess you're either driving, busy with your hands some other way, or interested in me and the show. If it's the last one, I should probably mention why there's not been many episodes this year. Firstly, as I ranted about in the intro, I've kind of been overwhelmed with submissions, and I know people don't like the silent treatment, so I've tried 
to read as much as possible to give a broad selection of authors to the show, but also to give feedback. However, that means some really unsuccessful reads, books that started well but ran out of steam by the end, some that were very terrible from the beginning. So I didn't read the whole thing. I could just read a couple of pages. Well, not not a couple of pages. I try to read 100 pages if I can. If it's a real struggle, then, of course, it it's a no. But it's just I can't interview people where I don't love the book. Uh, I do have authors that are on a one-to-watch list. So if I thought the book was fine, but it didn't really grab me, but I feel that they might write something better in the future, then I haven't like blacklisted them. So uh, there are people where I've gone, not this time. Also, don't like talking about it. I've had some health stuff that's made concentration difficult. That slowed me down. And I need to apologise to a bunch of writers I've interviewed but not yet published the episodes as I just got overwhelmed with the backlog and panicked a bit. However, doing this episode kind of reinvigorated and I've had some blunt conversations with PR people and publishers. So I'm now being sent better writers. So that's that's a good thing. I think in the end, also, I want a quality product to you. And I feel, especially with this episode and a few others I've got planned to release soon, that quality is definitely high. Also, you may have noticed that there's no ads on these episodes. Yes, I pay for all of this myself. I also transcribe every episode for the deaf and hard of hearing, and that takes time. So I also need to earn money elsewhere, eat, sleep, spend time with my wife, and if that means that this time-intensive labour of love is temporarily sacrificed, then that's what happens. I am going to get back to more episodes soon, though. I've got some really good ones to share. But anyway, that's all for this episode. And if you've listened this far, I love you. I miss you. And I hope you keep writing until the world ends. Time can never be your trusted friend or your sworn ally. No, it's the harshest mistress of all. And life is just a chain of moments spent, a thousand hellos and goodbyes. Maybe a love like ours can leave out its cause.
shift and pull up the tides Never 